Well, we start now into a little bit of a sub-series within the book of Romans. So the book of Romans can be divided up as we've been talking about, and we're now, for the next couple of months, going to be talking about the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. So the doctrine of election is one of those doctrines that is difficult to understand. It's nuanced. It, It has a lot of aspects to it. For example, it has to do with God's election of entire groups, such as the nation of Israel, which we're going to look at today. But then also his selection of or election of individuals within the group. And sometimes the two are not the same. The doctrine of election also addresses uh, the relationship between Israel and the church. That's confusing. It's divided biblical scholars and pastors and Bible readers for centuries and millennia. But more than any of the intellectual difficulties that come with this doctrine of election are the emotional difficulties. And I just want to acknowledge at the very front end of this little tour into Romans 9 through 11 that um, this is going to be a challenge for us to get our heads around, but even more so, I anticipate for some especially, it's going to be a challenge for us to get our hearts around. Uh, We probably, each of us, have loved ones, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors who don't know the Lord, don't profess to, to love Him, uh, and all of us see the world around us and even the people that we don't know. I hope that we are compassionate and caring to those who don't know Jesus and according to the doctrine of election, if they don't come to know Him, that has some very severe and unending consequences. Which means that when we start talking about God choosing some, and choose, not choosing others, choosing some groups and not choosing other groups, it's personal, and it's going to be difficult. So at the front end of this, I, it, and let me just exhort you in a couple of ways. Number one, allow yourself to feel what you feel as we go through this. Seek to understand the doctrine with your mind and allow your emotions to catch up later. Uh, there's no expectation uh, here that we have to be all rah-rah election at the front end. However, we're not going to apologize for a doctrine that is clearly articulated in the gospel in the scriptures either. So we're going to try and teach with clarity, but with some compassion as well. Second exhortation, if you're really struggling to understand or to embrace emotionally this doctrine, please come to talk to the elders. Talk, talk within, amongst yourselves, talk within your family groups, but eventually, if, if it's not going away, you're going to want to come and talk to the elders, and we'll sit down and pray with you and, and talk with you about this. Um, and what you're not going to get from us is uh, get in line, embrace this doctrine, and be glad about it all at once. We're going to try to help you to understand it and process it, but we're going to be patient and understanding that this is not something that is going to be easy. The third thing I want to acknowledge is that this is going to have an impact in in other ministries. So uh, Peter and I were talking before the service today that this is going to impact our senior high youth. So if there's any youth here that are listening, then you're going to go to youth group. You might have some questions. The same for junior high. And and that's okay. So bring your questions there, and then we'll be talking back and forth with with our leaders. And it's, it's going to impact us in our families. It's going to impact us across the board. So that's okay. We have to acknowledge that on the front end. Without And hear me, I am not apologizing or in any way waffling on the doctrine itself. I just want you to know that I'm aware that it's not easy. And that's okay. I've come to see that the doctrine of election, though, is a glorious thing. That... Yeah, it's not easy. There's, there's difficulty with it. But on the other hand, it means that God has chosen some. He has saved some. And, and if we are counted in that number, what a glorious thing that, that we love him because he first loved us. That's, that's a wonderful truth. Our salvation does not depend on our ability, our goodness, our righteousness. It depends entirely on God's choice. And that's a very secure place to be. So let's pray as we get into 
this uh, sermon today and the beginning of the sermon series. Oh yeah, there's one last thing I wanted to say. Please make every effort to come to church. This is not a series where you want to miss one. Um, and if you do have to be away, it happens. I understand that. Please listen before the next week. Like if you get behind a week or two, then an already difficult topic is going to become impossible for you. I, and I, I can't listen to the sermons for you. I can't process it for you. You have to commit on the front end to do the work so that you keep up. And the very first question that I'll ask you if you come with, with either a headache or a heartache over this doctrine is have you listened to the sermons? And if you haven't, that'll be step one. So please come. And then if you're not able to be here, please listen. And don't wait for a backlog of like five, four or five sermons, and then you have to do them all at once. That will probably crush you emotionally, uh, not to mention intellectually. But every week, catch up. Catch up. And I, I'm saying that not to be legalistic, but that's a pastoral concern I have for you with regard to this doctrine. So I hope you understand where I'm coming from on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to understand this doctrine of election. Help me to be clear in my teaching. I pray that for all of my weakness as a teacher of, of your scriptures, that your Holy Spirit would make up for my deficiency teaching by your word the men, women, youth, and children of this church especially over the next eight or so weeks as we take a look at Romans 9 through 11, the doctrine of election, the relationship of the church in Israel, uh, the fact that not all are going to be saved and you have known this from before the foundation of the world, but that a good many are and that those who are saved don't deserve to be saved. God, these are, these are just heart-wrenching and, and head-splitting issues. We pray for your mercy and your kindness toward us as we delve into this topic. I pray this trusting entirely in your goodness to us, your grace and your love, and the finished work of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's going to review the Romans structure and go through this fairly quickly to contextualize Romans 9 through 11 and then I'm going to read today's text. So through Romans 1 through 8, if you were here last week, I summarized those first eight chapters. Those are really the doctrines of salvation. That, that's the gospel in a nutshell and it's a pretty big nut, but it's there in one nutshell, and you can get everything that you absolutely need to know about the gospel. Is there more to know about the gospel? Yes, there is. But that, that gives you pretty much everything that you need to know about Christian doctrine when it comes to the issue of salvation. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And then we, before we get into responding to the gospel, we have these three chapters which we're beginning today. Romans 9 through 11. These are the doctrines of election. And doctrines plural. Because election has several subpoints to it. Which we're going to see over the next many weeks. And after we have the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of election, then chapters 12 through 16, Paul says, in light of all of this amazing truth, this is how you ought to live. This is, this is how you ought to respond if you're thinking rationally. You ought to respond in this way, thankful to God for all that he's done for you. So today's text is right there at the beginning of these doctrines of election. So this is, again, a very good chapter break. Uh, between 8 and 9, we come to a full stop at the end of chapter 8. The beginning of chapter 9, we're, we really are into something very different, very new than glorification, which is where we ended at the end of chapter 8. So I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Would you please stand? This is the Word of God. Romans 9, 1-13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are, are, are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved. But Esau, I hated. The Word of God. Oh, God, help us to understand this scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, today's text introduces really the doctrine of election. And we can divide this text into two parts. The first part is verses one through five. So verses 1 through 5, Paul gives us his emotional response to the doctrine of election. So he begins, when he's introducing the topic of election, he says, I want you to know this is how I feel about it. And then in verses 6 through 13, Paul begins to introduce intellectually what the doctrine of election is. What, what is that doctrine? How are we to understand it? So, so to divide today's text, you have how we ought to feel about the doctrine of election, and then how we ought to think about the doctrine of election. Now, for our purposes, from a very pastoral intent, I want to begin with how we ought to think about the doctrine of election. So we're going to start with verses 6 through 13, and we're going to end with how are we supposed to feel about the doctrine of election? And really, the big question for us this morning is, what is a right emotional response to the doctrine of election? And underneath this question, I hope that it's a very pastoral question, uh, but underneath this question is, how does God want us to respond emotionally to the doctrine of election? Because I wonder if there's some people who understand the doctrine and think that God just wants us to get all in line and to, to three cheers for election. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, hooray. And then anyone who can't do that feels like, well, I don't know that I can cheer for the doctrine of election. And my question is, is that what God wants from us? Is he looking for three cheers for the doctrine of election? I think maybe in some ways, yes, but We'll let verses 1 through 5 answer that more definitively for us. So beginning in verse 6, Paul introduces to us the doctrine of election. And we see here three statements in these opening verses that define election for us. Take, take a look at these three statements. Verse 6, statement number 1. It's not as though the word of God has failed Statement number two, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And statement number three, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Let's take a look at these three. I think these three statements really begin to, they open the door for us to understand what is this doctrine all about anyway. He begins with, it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
This is hard for us to understand unless we read verses 4 and 5, and that's where we're going to end. But in, in verses 4 and 5, if I could just summarize them now, and we'll look at them in more detail in a moment, uh, Paul is basically saying, God chose the nation of Israel. So the nation itself, this group of people going all the way back to Abraham, and so it started with God choosing a man, and from the man came a family, and from the family came a nation. God chose Abraham, and then Abraham's family was about 70 people in the time of Jacob when they went down into Israel, and then 430 years later, they came out of slavery in Egypt as about two million people, one nation. And, and what we know from verses four and five and the rest of the Bible is God chose that nation. He elected them. Election means to choose. God says, I choose you. Choose you for what? Well, this is where the doctrine of election gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, but we can say generically, God chose them for blessing. He chose them so that he could use them toward the salvation of the world. Now, in light of that, Paul says it's not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? Because although God chose the nation of Israel, throughout chapters 1 through 8, we find out that not every Israelite has been elected unto eternal salvation. And so Paul, at the very beginning, he says, if we're going to deal with the gospel, and, we're, and then eventually we have to deal with election, we have to just acknowledge this, this conundrum, this paradox in the scriptures. God elected a nation of people, but not every person in that group is elected unto eternal salvation. So what's going on there? How can God choose a group on one level, but not choose everyone in the group on another level? That's what Paul is trying to get at. And so at the very beginning, when we're thinking about the doctrine of election, the first thing that we learn intellectually is God chooses groups and God chooses individuals, and the two are not always the same. Just because you're in the group doesn't mean you're saved for eternal life. Put another way, just because you're in the group that God has elected for whatever purpose does not mean that you have been justified that you have been sanctified, that you will be glorified. Statement number two begins to explain this a little bit more. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. To be a biological member of the nation of Israel does not make a person a spiritual member of the eternal Israel. This is what Paul is saying. So there's two kinds of Israel. There's, well, I'm descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you, if you can trace your lineage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are biologically a member of the elect group. Biologically, your credentials are there. You are a part of Israel, the nation that God has chosen. And God chose no other nation in the history of the world the way that he chose Israel. So you can say, on the one hand, I'm a biological descendant of Jacob. I am an Israelite. I'm a part of the elect nation. And everything that you said is historically and theologically true. However, Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you're a biological member of the elect nation does not mean that you're individually a member of the spiritual Israel. That's the key part. Paul is making a distinction between uh, national Israel and spiritual Israel. You could put it this way. To be a biological descendant of Jacob does not mean that one is a spiritual child of Jacob. Because Jacob it was renamed Israel. So you can think in terms of descending from the man Jacob or being a part of the nation of Israel. Those are two different ways of saying the same biological fact. Paul says you can have membership in the nation and not have a personal election unto salvation in spiritual Israel. And then Paul goes on in the third statement, if you see it there in verse, the beginning of verse 7, 
Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This is the exact same concept that he said in statement number two. To be a biological descendant of Abraham does not mean that one is a spiritual child of Abraham. To be a biological descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not make one a spiritual child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now you might, well, what, what does that mean? And how am I to understand that? That's what the next eight weeks are all about, okay? So we'll get, put a little more onto it, but if you're not fully grasping it, don't, don't despair. If I was to summarize, these three statements are making two main points about the doctrine of election. So this is where Paul begins. This is where we must begin in understanding election. One thing I've learned about Romans 9 through 11 is don't get ahead of the author. Don't get ahead of Paul. Just go at his pace. Understand what he's saying as he's saying it, and don't try to apply it to yourself yet. Don't try to, to understand the relationship between Israel and the church. Paul's not talking about that yet. He's just trying to give us categories of thinking to understand what the doctrine of election is. And he's, he's really making two points about the doctrine of election at this point. Number one, election has a corporate dimension. There's a sense in which God chooses groups of people. And that's true of many different groups of people. He chooses uh, different groups of people for different things. He chose the nation of Israel to be the primary means in which he was going to deal with the human race and, and bring about salvation for the human race. So he's never chosen another nation in that way. Israel's uniquely elected by God to take us towards salvation in Jesus Christ. Corporate election. But election also has an individual dimension. Just as God is entering into covenant with groups of people, he's also entering into covenant with individual people. And these two concepts of election are not identical. Just because you're in the corporate group that God has elected does not mean that you've been individually elected. That's what Paul has established at this point. In other words, just because you are a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just because you're a biological Israelite does not mean you'll be saved. To put it in different words. So what does this mean? It means that God chooses groups of people to receive special blessing from him, but God does not choose every individual within the elected group on the individual level to receive personal salvation and eternal life. Therefore, you can be a member of the elect group and not be personally elected by God for eternal life. I'm just repeating myself because I, I just want to make that point. If we don't understand that, the, we have no hope of understanding the rest of Romans 9 through 11. In fact, it's understanding when is Paul talking about the corporate election and when is he talking about individual election? Keeping those two things separate in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is the key to proper interpretation. And the reason why misunderstanding abounds in these chapters is because we don't understand this primary point. It's foundational. God elects groups and God elects individuals and the two are not always the same. Okay. That's, that's, right. that's the main point intellectually for today. That's all we're going to learn about election intellectually today. So wrestle with that. Come to terms with that. Don't try to take it any further. Keep pace with me and with Paul. Now Paul does go on though and give us two illustrations. This, this shows you how important this theological idea is as he now illustrates it in two ways. His first illustration is the second half of verse 7 right through to chapter, or verse 9. So take a look at verse 7, halfway through, all the way to the end of verse 9. It is through Isaac, so this is illustration number one, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So I don't need to come up with my own illustration. I'm going to use Paul's illustration. This is an illustration to help us to understand the point that God elects groups and God elects individuals and they're not always the same. So what is this illustration? It is through Isaac 
that your offspring shall be named. Now, if you go back to Genesis, what you'll remember is God uh, had already given a son to Abraham through Hagar, and the name of that son was Ishmael. But God did not consider Ishmael to be Abraham's son. God considered Isaac to be Abraham's son. That's what it means when it says, it's through Isaac that your offspring, your children, shall be named. That is, I'm going to consider your offspring through Isaac, not through Ishmael. So Ishmael's your biological son, says God, but I don't consider him to be your son. I consider Isaac to be your son. And your sons are going to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. How could God not consider Ishmael to be Abraham's son? How could God say that that's an alternative fact? Is that not true? Ishmael is Abraham's son. Yes, it is true on the biological level. God's not talking about biology here. Sonship, and this is really crucial, a second piece to understand for understanding the, the relationship between God electing groups and individuals, Sonship in the ancient world, and and for us, I hope, as we're reading the Bible, is not about where did you come from? Whose genes are you carrying? Where did you get your chromosomes? Sonship in the Bible is about inheritance. That's crucial. So when, when God says, I do not consider Ishmael to be your son, God is not saying, I don't believe that he came from your body. I don't believe he's carrying your genes. I don't believe you gave him your chromosome. What he's saying is, I am not going to give any of the inheritance that I have given to you to him. I'm going to give the inheritance entrusted to you to Isaac, not Ishmael. So sonship becomes about who gets to carry the inheritance, the blessing that God has given So God is not denying Ishmael's biological lineage from Abraham, but God is denying Ishmael a share in the spiritual inheritance that comes from Abraham. Well, what is this spiritual inheritance that Abraham is carrying? What is it that Abraham has to pass on? And you'll remember in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God entrusted the gospel to Abraham. He says, through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And to your offspring, I will give this land, meaning the promised land, which is just a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, and I don't have time to do that whole thing. But in short, basically, what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, is I'm giving you the gospel. And then when he says it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named is that this, this inheritance of the gospel is not going to be passed down through Ishmael. It's going to be passed down through Isaac. Isaac is the gospel child of promise. So it's not the children of the flesh who will receive the inheritance of the gospel. It is the children of the promise who will receive this inheritance. And what does God mean when he says it is through the child of promise? Right? Do you see it there in verse 8? It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What does that mean? The children of promise are those whom God individually elects. Individually elects. God says, look, you're going to have a lot of kids. Your family tree is going to splinter. It's going to become massive. You're two million people by the time you're coming out of Egypt. Plus, you all also have this Ishmaelite line with their 12 princes and all of the children that come into the world through them. And so if we're just going to give eternal life to all of your biological children, then all of these people, the entire Arab world would be saved. The entire um, uh, uh, Shemite world would be saved. All of Israel would be saved. And, And God says, no, it's not about who comes from your body. It's about the children of promise. Who are the children of promise? They're the children that I individually elect. So 
To put it in other words, Abraham, I'm going to make you an elect group. But within that group, I'm going to individually elect individuals for salvation. And those individuals are the children of promise. They become, according to verse 8, children of God. This is really good news for us, and I'm going to bridge here this one time only in this sermon because Paul does not do that here. But let me just say that most of us are Gentiles, which means that if the promise, if the inheritance of the gospel, if the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ is limited to the election of the group, we are all out of luck if we're not an Israelite. Because then it would go to the Ishmaelites and to uh, to. Isaac and Jacob and Israelites, and it wouldn't come to the Gentiles. But praise be to God that we can be adopted children, adopted sons into Abraham's family by grace through faith if, big if, God individually elects us, even though we're outside of the elect group. So I have the group here, we have, we're over here. Even though we're outside of the elect group, God can individually elect us and adopt us into the elect group. That's where we're going. So it's all very good news. But Paul doesn't go there here, and I'm not going to go there again in this sermon. So, illustration number one, Abraham has two sons. If, if, if the gospel goes to everyone who comes out of Abraham's body, then Ishmael and Isaac should both be individually elect, but they're not. Isaac is individually elect, and Ishmael is not. Illustration number two, Romans 9, 10 to 13. And not only so, so that's just Paul's way of saying, and I have another example for you. Also, when Rebecca had not, uh, when Rebecca, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I often wonder, why did God spend three generations to get us to Jacob, who becomes Israel, and the 12 tribes? Why not do 12 tribes from Abraham? And what we find out here is God is teaching us something about election in those first two generations. Uh, From Abraham, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. Okay, so Isaac is the elect group now. The elect group's going to come from him, and he's the elect individual. So now, what is it? Everyone who comes from Isaac is going to be the children of promise? No, not so fast. Because this elect individual within the elect group also has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and one of them is elect, and the other is not. So what we're learning is what's true of Abraham's children and Isaac's children will also be true of Jacob's children. Again, it's not about biology, it's about God's choosing. And so, basically, to summarize very quickly, God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. What does this mean? It simply means God elected Jacob. He chose him to receive eternal life through the gospel. God considered Jacob to be the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And what does it mean to be a son? To receive the inheritance. What's the inheritance, the spiritual inheritance here? To be the torchbearer of the gospel. Esau, on the other hand, who has every biological right to this claim that Isaac had, sorry, that Jacob has, is not elect and he receives nothing. There's an illustration to make the point. There's an elect group, but not everyone in that group is individually elect. Now, why would God do this? Verse 11 is really important for us to wrestle through. Is it because Jacob was a better person than Esau? Maybe Isaac was just a more pleasing son than Ishmael? Is it because Jacob was a little bit more righteous than Esau? Or Isaac was a little bit more righteous than Ishmael? Verse 11 just blows that out of the water. They were not yet born. They had done nothing, either good or bad. When God said, Jacob I love, Esau I hate. The older, that is Esau, will serve the younger, that is Jacob. 
I have elected unto salvation, I have given the inheritance of the gospel to one of these brothers and not to the other. And it has nothing to do with them. They're still in utero. And God says it has nothing to do with them. And as you're reading through the Bible, sometimes you come up against a parent and you say, well, I actually kind of like the non-elect better than the elect. And I think when you, when you look at Jacob and Esau, I mean, Esau made some pretty big mistakes, but Jacob was a scoundrel and a deceiver, and he was, he was so selfish on so many levels, and yet God loved him. God chose him. It has nothing to do with how good he is or how lovely he is. It has everything to do with God saying, well, I just choose. I, I choose him. And that's what verse 11 makes so clear. You, you can't wiggle out of this verse. It's in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Translation. These two boys haven't, hadn't done anything good or bad. If God was to judge, they would be completely equal at the time that he chose one and not the other. And this was so that God could choose. He reserves the right to choose who's going to be saved and who's not. This is not because of works. That is, it's not about which man was better morally, ethically, practically. Now, I know what we want to do. Well, couldn't God have just looked down the corridors of time and seen what they did? And actually, if he weighed the two together, he would choose Jacob at the end, even though he made this declaration before they were born. He says, no. Right there, it says it's not because of work. So God did know the full sum total of the works of both men. But the scripture is very clear. He didn't choose Jacob because Jacob had better works. It was because God called him. Full stop. It's hard. Three observations from these two illustrations. Again, I, hopefully this will become just really clear. Election is not based on biology or lineage. Ishmael and Isaac, same, same dad. Jacob and Esau, same father. And in, in their case, also same mother. So you, you might say with Isaac and Ishmael, well, it was Hagar versus Sarah. No, well, Jacob and Esau, it's Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac and Rebekah. It has nothing to do with the mom or the dad. That's observation number one out of these two illustrations. Observation number two. Election within a group does not necessitate election of every person in that group. Jacob and Esau were both a part of the elect group of Abraham and Isaac. The focus of this text is God's election of a group, that is Israel from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also God's election of individuals within the elected group. The focus on this text is not on Gentiles outside of this group. So although I did what I said I wouldn't do by bringing it to us because I thought you just you needed that in that moment, um, what we need to know here is this is not about Israel and the church at this point. This is about election within Israel. And if you get ahead of Paul, as I cautioned earlier, then this whole three chapters will unravel and you will have a really hard time putting it all together. So this text is not about Israel and the church. Paul will get to Israel and the church. But just stay within Israel. Israel is the elect group, and within the elect group, some are elected unto salvation and some are not. Within the elect group, Isaac and Jacob are elect, Ishmael and Esau are not. That's the point. Which brings us to our third observation. Election is not fair. It's not fair. 
If you have any notion that election has to be fair, if, if your paradigm for trying to wrestle intellectually and emotionally about the doctrine of election is that we need some fairness here. It, it, it's not fair that God would choose Jacob and not Esau, and it has nothing to do with their, their uh, works or their righteousness. It has entirely to do with God just choosing one and not the other. That's not fair. That's, that's how we should feel. And... I'm just saying at the very first sermon about election, it's just not fair. If you want fair, you will go to hell if you want fair. So we got to be very careful when we say we want salvation to be fair. It's not fair that we've been chosen. It's not fair. Now, I say that, I don't say that smugly. I say that knowing the full implications of what I've just said is that that's going to send someone or some few or some many in this church in a little spiral. How could I love a God that's not fair? How can I embrace a doctrine that's not fair? How am I going to worship this God? I want fair. Well, so I know the implications, and this is what I, how I've started today's message, right? It's going to be hard. But let's just get it on the table. It's not fair. So Paul introduces us to the doctrine of election in verses 6 through 13. His focus is on Israel. His purpose is to distinguish between two kinds of election. God's election of groups and God's election of individuals within the group. So you can be a part of the elect group and not be individually elected unto salvation. If you're a member of the elect group, you get to share in the temporal blessings of that group. But you do not get to share in the eternal blessings that come through the gospel. That's why there's a passage in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 7, that says that an unbelieving spouse is holy, otherwise the children would not be holy. The, uh, an unbelieving spouse gets to be a part of the elect group, but is not individually elected unto salvation until they come to faith. Therefore, Although the nation of Israel is God's elect nation, not every individual Israelite is personally elected for salvation and eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This would have rocked Israel's world when Paul wrote it down. Salvation was by circumcision, and it wasn't circumcision. It was the proof of lineage back to Abraham that guaranteed in the Israelite mind a place in eternal life. And Paul's saying, false, false. Now, there are many challenges that inhibit us from embracing the doctrine of election. Uh, even already this morning, we've had to work, right? This has been work. How do you understand the doctrine of election? Groups and individuals, Abraham and, and, and Hagar, Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael and, and Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. There's a lot of names. And in order to understand election, you've got to sort through all of that. So it's hard intellectually but probably more than that, it's hard emotionally. Now, Paul understood all of the nuances of election far better than I ever will, or probably anyone in this room ever will, and yet he had a particular emotional response to the doctrine of election. So he understands it. We cannot say that just understanding the doctrine better will resolve all of the emotional dissonance that it creates. And what I find so wonderful is that when Paul is about, you could just sort of picture him probably dictating to somebody writing the book of Romans because his eyesight was so bad and he didn't write most of his own letters, the, the writing. He di would dictate most of them. And I could see him just pausing, big deep breath, and his scribe would just put the pen down. Okay. Well, I guess we better talk about election. Yeah, I, I guess we better. Okay, how do you want to start? Well, says Paul, let's start this way. 
And then he talks about how he feels about it before he even tells us what it is. I find that very instructive. By, by front-loading these three chapters with insight into how the man who understood election better than any other person other than Jesus Christ in the history of humanity, he understood the doctrine better than anyone, and he says, well, I think we better address the emotional issues first. So let's end our time by taking a look at how did Paul handle the doctrine of election emotionally? This is his emotional response. Verses 1 through 3. Take a look at these. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Before he even gets to his emotional response, did you notice what he did there in verse 1? He gives us a threefold claim to sincerity. I'm going to say something, and because you have been reading Romans 1 through 8, and because you've listened to my preaching, because you know my reputation, Paul is writing to the Romans, you, you might not believe me when I say I'm heartbroken about this, but, but I want you to understand, he gives us a threefold claim to sincerity. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. As Jesus Christ is my witness, what I'm about to say about how I feel about election is true. And if I'm lying, may Christ strike me dead. That, that's the force of the first thing. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. And, and his second attempt at, at convincing us of his sincerity, he says, I am not lying. The only reason someone says, I am not lying, is because they're afraid that they're going to be accused of lying. I am not lying. This is the truth. No matter what you think you know about how I feel about the things that I preach, I'm not lying about this. And then the third thing that he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit I've searched myself out. That is what he's saying. Is I, I've even asked myself, am I tr truthful about how I feel? I, I've searched out my own conscience and, and I've looked for confirmation by the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit has affirmed that what I believe about what I'm about to say about how I feel about election is true. Notice what he's done there. He's, he's brought in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He's brought in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And, and he, he wants us to know, and, and I hope you're wondering, what is he going to say? Th this is really super important, what I'm about to say. And I'm not lying. It's true. And what he's about to say is how he feels about election. This is Paul's emotional response to election. I would go even further to say that this is the Holy Spirit's response on some level to election because it's the Holy Spirit who's inspiring Paul to write this. It is Paul's emotional response to election that ought to be our emotional response to the doctrine of election. This is a divinely inspired emotional response to the doctrine of election. And what does he say? He says, I have great sorrow. This is not somebody who feels kind of bad that some people aren't going to make it. This is a man who, who's wrenched in his heart and in his soul that some are not elect. Great sorrow. Deep grief. We've all grieved. Consider your, your lowest grief. I would say that Paul is trying to communicate that that's where he lives in the doctrine of election. The deepest grief that is, is possible for a human being to experience, that's where Paul lives emotionally when it comes to the doctrine of election. And is this something that comes and goes? You know how our grief comes and goes and time is a great healer? It doesn't remove all of it, but we can progress. 
Second thing he says is, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. This is an always present grief that hurts at the deepest level of human emotional experience. What Paul's saying is, if you, if you can get your head around what I'm going to tell you, it will break your heart with an unceasing anguish that never goes away. How do I know Paul is this serious? Because of what he says next. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And I think this is really what Paul is saying. I'm about to say something radical, and you're not going to believe that I actually mean it. You're going to think that I'm speaking in hyperbole, but it's not hyperbole. What is hyperbole? It's that when you say something more extreme in order to make a lesser point. Paul is saying, I am saying something that I actually would back up if I could. If God came down with a contract and said, Paul, sign here, you go to hell and everyone else goes to heaven. You're raised unto eternal condemnation and are thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone else is raised up in glory and goes into the new heavens and the new earth. It's a trade. You for the rest of the world. Paul says, if God gave me the chance to do that for everyone else, I'd do it. But I can't because God chose me and I can't undo God's election of me. He says, I would. Who would go to hell for the human race? Well, apparently Paul. And we know Jesus Christ did. And then by reminding us about God's corporate election of Israel in verses 4 and 5, what I hear through verses 4 and 5 is Paul's very articulate way of screaming to the heavens, it's not fair. Verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who's God over all. Blessed forever, amen. It's not fair. God, it's not fair. You gave Israel the adoption. That is, you give them the inheritance of eternal life. It's through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that even this possibility of eternal life is, is there. You gave them the glory. You manifested yourself to them in the wilderness, not to any other nation. And you didn't choose them all. You gave them the covenants. You made unconditional promises to Abraham. You made unconditional promises to Moses and to David. And some conditional as well. But God, you made unconditional promises to them. And when you elected the group, how could you not have elected all of them? You gave them your promises. How could you not give them all of, or all of them your promises, the covenants? The giving of the law? You showed them who you were? It's not fair that you would give them the law and then not the ability to keep the law and then you'd condemn them. Why didn't you save them all? Write the law on their hearts. You gave them the worship. You showed them how to worship through the book of Leviticus and the book of Psalms. You have taught them. You've asked them to worship you and you're not going to save them all? You gave them the promises. I've already touched on this. The unconditional promises. You gave them the patriarchs. It was your idea to save the world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They come from these men. How could you not also give them eternal life along with their forefathers? And then the big one of all, you gave them the Christ. The Messiah is a Jew. How could the Messiah, who is a Jew, not choose to save all of his brethren according to the flesh? It's not fair. That's when we transition to verse 6, right? But it's not as though the Word of God has failed. 
It's always been this way. God chose a group, and from the group, he chose individuals. It's just the way it is. That's election. It's always been that way, and Paul knows that. So he starts with how he feels, but then he's going to work his way back from the edge, and he's going to articulate what the doctrine of election is. Therefore, what should we say is an appropriate emotional response to the doctrine of election in the weeks ahead? Do you know I, I read articles, I listen to podcasts, I hear sermons, and this is especially, uh, what would I say, we're especially at risk as Reformed evangelicals. The Reformed tradition is a great tradition, but some Reformed people can be so smug, so cold-hearted, so argumentative, And they don't care, or they don't seem to care. When they're arguing the intellectual side of election about all of the people that haven't been chosen. And what I hope for us is that we would not be that kind of reformed Christian. And in fact, when you see a brother or sister who believes the same doctrines as you, but they're smug about it and unfeeling about it, that you would rebuke them and you would take them to these verses. Because being right is not all of the battle. There's a way to be right and a way not to be right. And if we have not love, we're just a noisy gong clanging in the wind anyway. And if our heart isn't broken about those whom God has not chosen, then who are we? We're definitely not representing Christ. We're not in sync with Paul. Should we look down on people who are struggling to embrace this doctrine intellectually? No, it's hard to understand. Should we look down on people who are struggling to understand it emotionally? No. In fact, that ought to be us. If, if, if you haven't begun to struggle with the doctrine of election, then, then you just haven't begun to understand the implications of it. We ought to have great sorrow. Deep grief. The Christian life is a, is a life of joy, but it also ought to be a deep grief. A life of grief and sorrow. There ought to be a, a limp in our walk. We should have an unceasing anguish in our hearts. And maybe you have a face in mind that your heart is broken over. A husband or a wife, a child, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a co-worker, a neighbor, or maybe it's some anonymous Muslim on the far side of the world, or maybe it's the president of China, or maybe it's our own prime minister. Like, we can be so rude and mean-spirited toward these people who are, unless God does something, going to hell. And I think about our Canadian election as we're preaching about election. Rather than hating our prime minister because he's not saved, could we not have an unceasing anguish in our hearts for him? And how would that change our political discourse? Might we even dare to wish that we could go to hell so that our prime minister could go to heaven? And I use him intentionally because of course a, a mother would trade places with a daughter or a son. But would you trade places with the prime minister? <laughs> would you trade places with the with the Muslim world or the Hindu world? Would you trade places with India? If all of India could go to heaven and be raised from the dead, would you go to hell for them? Now, it's impossible, okay? You can't. That's not, it's not a trade that God is entertaining. But until our heart breaks for those who have not yet been called, we're of very little use to God. So let us not be cold and callous about this doctrine. We're going to be precise. We're going to have conviction about it. And, and we are going to worship God because of it. 
So you can have unceasing sorrow in your heart and you can worship God because of election. This is one of those great, one of those, how can you exalt on the highest mountaintop because of the doctrine of election and also be broken down here? The two have to happen at the same time. I'm not saying that we go around apologetically hating the doctrine of election because it's hard emotionally. Emotionally, it's the most glorious of the doctrines as well. And we'll get to that. But today, may there always be an undercurrent of brokenheartedness. For those whom God has not chosen. But let us revel in God's election of us, unworthy though we are, because election is not fair. And we have benefited from its lack of fairness. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for us. Help us. Help us to understand this doctrine and then understanding it help us to respond appropriately both with great sorrow and anguish but also to exalt you in our election because it is glorious that you chose us we're unworthy but you've chosen us i thank you god i thank you so much for what you've done through christ in his name we pray. Amen.